core focus of this series of Zoom webinars is really international restrictive covenants and confidential information with a focus on how these issues hit multinational employers. Today's topic within that is trade secret protection and this, quote, new normal, and really thinking about is, is your information safe as an employer? Is your information safe? And how do you keep it safe during the work from home time and when it's time to return to work and, and kind of during the transition between those two? And so that's our focus. A lot of what we want to talk about is kind of practical, the steps that, that firms can take to deal with those issues in a suddenly somewhat different and rather unique working context. Obviously, let me introduce our panel. First is Merrill April, who is with CM Murray LLP. CM Murray is a preeminent groups of solicitors in London focusing on employment issues and also have Jonathan Cohen, QC from Littleton and know Littleton and know Jonathan as somebody to turn to for court appearances and assistance when it comes time to go into the high court on these types of issues. Third is my partner, Michael Avila, who is a partner at Fisher Phillips uh, and located in the firm's Philadelphia office in the U.S. So that's our team. We're going to sort of hit a few topics today, really kind of divided around employees' status during this, during the pandemic, and really focusing on what an employer may do with, with sort of protecting uh, as to employees and certain statuses. So one obvious status that struck us was employees who have been let go. Unfortunately, this is a time period where there are a lot of employees who are, are about to be laid off or have been laid off. And so, you know, one of the things that we thought we should hit, should have just touch on is what's the right approach for companies who are letting people go? What steps should be taken to protect the, protect our confidential information in that scenario? So I guess, Mike, you want to sort of start out with the discussion of that? Yeah, sure, Chris. There is a general overarching theme that we're experiencing now with respect sort of common business experiences across borders. Uh, with respect to COVID-19 and, and the impact it's had on continuity and employment continuity. And I, I tend to think one of the themes that will permeate our discussion today is the notion of programmatic responses to de dealing with departed employees, as well as incoming employees, too, uh, for reasons we'll get into. I tend to think that that's a, a common and important tactic when dealing with employee departures, especially competitive employee departures, but particularly now where we're experiencing larger than normal volumes of, of departures on a regular basis, and we're seeing the economy change. It becomes even more important to maintain programmatic consistency with how we treat covenant regime as well as our departing em employee and trade secret protections. But you have uh, some thoughts on, on measures employees might want to take with, with employees who are being let go, kind of just to, to ensure protection of confidential information when you've got folks who... Uh, you know, may have been working from home or are kind of being let go in the face of that. Sure, yes. I think as in normal times, so too now, um, there are sort of soft and hard measures that can be taken and, and should be taken. You know, the exit interview, I think, is, is still a useful tool. It may have to be done on Zoom or Teams or, or differently, depending on where people are. But I think that is still very valuable. And that can remind people of their contractual and other obligations when they're leaving, particularly in relation to returning, whether it's hard or soft copy data that belongs to the employer or passwords, very key in some, in some businesses. And, and also, I think there are those harder measures, such as a reminder letter, perhaps following up 
I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. You can have the interview remind people directly and then follow up with a letter. And I think one of the interesting things about that that we see a lot in practice is what's in the reminder letter? Is it, does it go beyond what the employer can actually enforce? And if it does, is that a good idea? Throw that out there. We often, you know, we pounce on these if we're acting for an individual and it's trying to uh, go beyond what the employer actually has in place. But certainly useful, I think, to remind people of their obligations and especially where they've been keeping that data at home and they might feel that bit more invisible. Uh, yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And, and you know, Meryl, your, your, your comment about a possible over overreach in that reminder letter is interesting. And we do see that. And I mean, obviously, the most extreme scenario you'll see is somebody may have a sort of standard form that is sent out from maybe perhaps from HR. Uh, and in the US, we'll see sometimes these letters asserting various restrictions might be sent to somebody who, who, who was just laid off or departed in California, where what you can say to somebody in Pennsylvania or New York is not really the same that you can demand that they refrain from in California, where, you know, essentially, you know, almost all restrictive covenant type uh, restrictions are, are prohibited. And so you might have overreach on that front. And, you know, you, you actually might create an affirmative problem for yourself in a place like California doing that. Rather than protect yourself, you may have stirred up trouble. Chris, you might you might also, in a lesser sense, create a, a problem where the the stridency of the overreach actually has the the opposite result, which is the employee immediately recognizes that it's uh, the letter contains inaccuracies or references to agreements that he or she didn't sign or that aren't enforceable, and they, they may then ignore the totality of the instruction because they just tune out at some. Point. Whereas if you go straight to the core issues and you're careful with your communication, you have I think a higher likelihood of reaching home with the the former employee. Right, and what, you know, one of the strategies sometimes is rather than have a form that's a straightforward reminder, you know, it can be useful to do something even more direct, and and it might well be a good idea in this context where people have been working from home and just say, listen, we need you to sign this kind of written certification that you have returned everything because kind of almost anywhere could safely say, you can say to an employee, we want all our stuff back. You know, that as yet, California has not outlawed that. And, you know, and I'm not aware of anybody anywhere else that has that we can certainly demand back our, our confidential business information. And it's not necessarily unreasonable to ask somebody to, uh, to certify that they've, they've done that. You know, and I think that can be now whether the whether the employee will sign it or not. Who knows? I guess if they don't, maybe that's a bit of a red flag. One option from the U.S. perspective could be to incorporate the certification in any if you if you're doing a reduction in force or uh, any sort of severance related separation that you include in that severance agreement an obligation to confirm the return and, and expungement of confidential and trade secret information. You might also consider, at least in the U.S., clawback or a partial clawback clause to be able to add some teeth to it to motivate the employee to, to do the due diligence uh, and return information, take it seriously. That would also and, be and common in the U.K. Just to say, it's worth thinking about where the data that you're looking to protect is and, and to be quite careful if you're looking to cover all of it. I think one of the cases in the UK that we're probably going to get onto in the trail finders case there was some information that the employer wished to claim confidence over that was accessible through clients individual sort of access rights and so that created some interesting uh, issues in that case but and I think that 
in many ways, what we're talking about conceptually, if we kind of go back to what, what the law is on, on protecting a company's trade secrets, is we're really talking about two things right now. One is actually getting our stuff back and making sure that the employee doesn't have it, but also doing things that show that, from a U.S. perspective anyway, that we are taking measures that are readable under the circumstances the secrecy of what we want to claim as a trade secret. Uh, and that, that's essentially uh, standard. Certainly any, any of the U.S. states that has enacted the Uniform Trade Secrets Act or a version of it uh, all have that formulation, as does the, the relatively recently enacted U.S. Federal Trade Secrets Act. Jonathan, now that I've started talking about law and, and such things and how, how one may have to argue this in court, let me turn to you. Talk to us a little bit about that, because what Merrill and Mike have just been talking about are things that can be be done as practical measures upon termination of somebody who's been working from home. How do you see that playing out from a legal perspective in terms of protecting the trade secrets? Well, I think it only takes you so far. And perhaps unsurprisingly, I'm a big fan of the systems analysis because it seems to me it is almost impossible in the modern world for there to be the theft of confidential information without there being an electronic footprint. You know, when I see senior executives who come to me for advice and they say, oh, am I, are my covenants enforceable? It's surprising how often, eventually, after about half an hour of discussion, they'll say, oh, and by the way, I've made a backup of the database or I've taken some of my emails or you know, there's just some relatively trivial slide decks that I think might be quite useful in my new employment, so I've taken those. That's okay, isn't it? It won't be a problem. Uh, never yet has anyone like that come to see me who's taken the information in what I would describe as an intellectual way. There is always a footprint. And so if you're acting for the former employer, it's worth spending the money on that analysis because there is almost certainly a pot of gold at the rainbow, you know, if you have suspicions on good grounds. On the other hand, if you're acting for the departing executive, then the very first thing you want to do is find out what they have done and make sure at the very earliest stage they hold their hands up. They say, we've taken this information. We're very sorry that we've done it. We made no use of it whatsoever. And here is all of it back so that you take the sting out of it from the get-go. So I think these things are absolutely critical. The evidence will always be there. Jonathan, that makes perfect sense. I mean, and, and you're right. You know, when I first started doing these cases, I recall we, we would look for indication that the the paper had been unstapled and restapled as had secret, you know, photocopied at night. That now we're looking for very different things. And and what's there, it's, it's almost always there. Obviously, there's a cost factor that's involved. And so, kind of going, you know, talking to our our clients about uh, engaging a, a forensic expert to to do some some of that. Sometimes people are blocking at the cost, but at a, but certainly if you if there's any sense you're going to litigate, you have to go down that path because that's that's where it will have happened. You're you're unlikely to prove your case, and you know you're going to have to do it at some point anyway if you, if you're going to litigate to enforce it. That's certainly certainly what what we see. One of the things that I think is tricky, and and again thinking about letting letting employees go, which is an unfortunate fact of what what's happening given the effect of of the pandemic on the economy and a lot of employers. You know, one of the things that, that certainly we have been talking to employers about is how are you monitoring where people go? It's one thing to know somebody's leaving and going to a competitor if they walk in and resign and say, you know, I'm leaving and I'm going to XYZ. There are probably 
systems that might want to be put in place. And, you know, Mike Romero, maybe you guys can speak to this to sort of monitor your risk profile and looking at you know, how we're sort of keeping track of uh, where people are and what risk they may pose. I tend to think that there's there's a few options and, a, and they're particularly helpful now where folks aren't resigning in person in many instances. They're not coming in for exit interviews. It's easier for them to be cagey if they want to be. But in the U.S., notice provisions, I think, may become very popular on the work from, from home front for multiple reasons because it gives employers time to investigate where the person's going, what they might have, get it back. Contractual requirements to disclose uh, new employment opportunities also can be quite helpful. Uh, it gives you that added leverage point to impose on the employee an obligation and inform the employee that there's, there's going to be a meaningful legal problem for them if, they, if they're not willing to comply with their contractual obligations. One of the benefits I find in clauses requiring disclosure of future employment is that it, it, it's an early indicator of the employee's likelihood of compliance. So if the employee is not willing to tell you where they're going, that's a very strong sign that you should be paying close attention. And then even after they leave, if you haven't been able to figure it out yet, monitoring uh, social media, communications with clients, uh, things like that become very important. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think we've seen a big increase in the number of contracts that contain these compulsory disclosure provisions and following a, a lot of key sort of team move cases in the last decade or so. So you would typically see a clause maybe that says if you receive an approach from a rival or if you're aware of a colleague receiving an approach from a rival, you need to disclose it. And I've seen some uh, judicial comment to the effect that... Uh, it may be irrelevant if someone lies about where they're going, but from our perspective, we always advise people not to do that because if, if you do end up in court, then obviously, you know, the integrity and, and the credibility of, of the individual is an important factor. And there will be very detailed judicial inquiries into, you know, the facts and, and, and who left when and what they said to whom. Yeah, Meryl, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we, we certainly always encourage people to, you know, be straightforward when you're resigning and act like you have nothing to hide, that there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. It's certainly, you know, helpful to adopt that posture right from the beginning if, if, you're, if you're comfortable with your plan, you know, look, looking like you have something to hide or, you know, saying lawyers told me don't, don't talk about it. I mean, that sounds terrible, right? So I, I think that, that advice makes a lot of sense. One of the questions that I think is interesting to think about is, yeah, what is the impact uh, on ability to enforce the covenant of the fact that somebody may have been involuntarily terminated? And Jonathan, maybe maybe you can speak to that a little bit in your experience. You know, what might we see as the impact of that involuntary termination, if any, or does it does it really not matter that the person has been let go versus uh, versus voluntarily jumping ship? Well, English law doesn't care about the circumstances of termination. If an employee is terminated by the employer, the covenant's enforceable no matter what. The only situation where English law does care is if the employee terminates in circumstances where they're entitled to do so because the employer is in what we call repudiatory breach of contract, serious breach. And in those circumstances, the covenants will fall away. So you know, sometimes if you're an employee and you're looking for your opportunity, if the employer is manipulating, for example, the furlough situation, uh, behaving badly, then that might be your opportunity to get out and to leave free of covenants. Uh, and that's why sometimes we find situations of 
of poacher and gamekeeper and the former employer, the existing employer is extremely anxious to, to keep the employee no matter what. The employee is looking for any opportunity to try and extract themselves without covenants. The worse the employee behaves, the more the employer is turning the thumb screws to try and make sure that there can be no unlawful departure. The more the thumb screws are turned, the more the departing employee sees an opportunity to say, I'm being badly treated, so I'm entitled to go. You know, these are some sort of classic cases that we see all the time. And I imagine there'll be many of those over the coming months. That makes a lot of sense. And certainly, you know, Mike, maybe you can speak to this. In the U.S., we see, we see different courts in, in, in different states to a certain extent giving varying significance to uh, uh, the, the fact of an involuntary termination. And, and there's probably different ways people approach it. Yeah, sure. And, and that's, that's exactly right. There's a deeply factual analysis and a deeply state-specific analysis raised by the question. In certain states in the U.S., courts, the general rule is that if the employee is, is terminated by the employer without cause or as a, as a member of a reduction in force, that non-competes ought not to be enforced against them. But I think from a factual perspective, what many courts will do is they'll, they'll look at the basis for termination. Uh, so here in Pennsylvania, for instance, you're going to have an uphill fight if you have a reduction where you eliminate, say, the bottom 5% of your sales force, and then you seek to enforce a non-compete against those folks because the court will look at it and say, well, they weren't, they weren't a real competitive threat because they weren't doing a great job for you, and that's why you let them go. But I think you get a very different reaction from the court if you terminate someone because they were engaging in malfeasance or acting inappropriate in the workplace, and but, but otherwise remain a competitive threat in, in the open market. I, I think one of the things that we see in the U.S. is there's, there's different ways to technical legal matter. And Jonathan, this goes a little bit of what you were talking about, that it, this factor actually arrives in the analysis because... You know, in some ways, I think it's also true in most U.S. states that it is not literally relevant uh, to the actual, you know, kind of classic breach of contract analysis. In fact, most covenants in the, that, that we see in the U.S. say, you know, for one year following your termination of employment for any reason, uh, that thou shalt not uh, do whatever. Where I think where it really comes in more frequently, regardless of what the actual law is, is in the sort of uh, equitable balancing that happens uh, when judges are, are asked to exercise their equitable discretion to grant an injunction, which of course is an equitable remedy. And so part of what needs to be considered in addition to you know, establishing a, you know, a likelihood of success if it's preliminary, you know, as opposed to actual success, but, but then showing irreparable harm and that there is some sort of balancing of the equities between the parties. And I think that's where sometimes courts take into account, wow, you know, you just fired her, she's on the street and doesn't have, you know, and she had to go take a job, you put her in this position. I I don't know if I'm going to enforce your full non-compete. I think in some ways, Mike, that's driven by, the frequency in U.S. jurisdictions with which the judge can do less, can look at the restrictions in the contract and say, I'm going to toss the non-compete. I'll give you the non-solicit. You're fired or I'm not going to make her not work. Uh, and, and so I think that ability to kind of give lesser included relief makes it a little bit easier to take that factor into account as a matter of equity. I, I agree. I think there's something important to keep in mind when you're analyzing this, which is 
of course, we have the four corners of a contract, but when we're talking about an employee restrictive covenant, there is law outside of the contract restraining its enforceability. And so in order to enforce a non-compete, it has to to protect a legitimate underlying business interest. And it becomes an uphill fight to suggest you have a legitimate business interest in keeping someone who's, in your view, bad at their job, for example, out of competition. You know, I don't think that we are in England very far apart from you. I think the difference is that if the U.S. courts can take into account circumstances of a dismissal in an overt way, the difference is that our judges do it in, I won't call it an intellectually dishonest way, but it certainly is a way that substantially influences the court. It's not an open consideration in the question of enforcement, but my God, once the judge is against you because they don't like the way the employee's been treated, they're going to try very hard to stop you getting the relief. And there are so many discretionary considerations which go into the grant, certainly of an interim injunction. Well, if your position is difficult on how you've behaved, then you're not likely to do very well on the application for injunctive relief, in my view. The other thing to say on this is in the situation we're facing now, I guess, with furlough and and likely impending redundancies, we we had some figures came out today suggesting 15% of the 9 million people furloughed might be made redundant, is that um, often, I mean, many of those may be more junior, may not have restrictive covenants, but some will be senior and lots of senior execs who come across our doors will say surely these covenants are not enforceable and you know then you go through the saying well yes they are um, but where there are ex gratia payments being made and settlement agreements as you were talking about Mike then this will become an area for negotiation I'm sure. Yeah, I would think it would. And, 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 and it'll be interesting to see, you know, um, what we've been talking about is our, all of our collective experiences with sort of pre-COVID case law and anecdotal experience with judges. But we certainly could see the uh, COVID either overtly or kind of uh, under the, the surface come into play in terms of how judges um, are likely to enforce them. I think certainly I would be advising employers to be cognizant of the overall scenario before going to seek a, a full non-compete enforcement of somebody who really just because of the circumstances had to be let go. You might start out pretty pretty far behind in, in, in that sort of tally, Jonathan, that you were talking about in terms of how the judge feels on things. Let's switch gears a little bit to thinking about those who are kind of in a better situation of the employees, and that's those who are being kind of recalled coming back to the workplace. And this could be I guess I'm really thinking right now, people who have been working from home and who are now returning to the workplace uh, because the workplace is opening partially or or their role is something that really needs to be brought back in or, you know, we're getting to a happier time when lots of people are coming back into the workplace and thinking about that. Meryl, do you want to speak a little bit to, you know, what kind of procedures employers ought to have in place as they bring people back into the office from their kitchen table or their home office or, you know, wherever they've been toiling away for many months. Yes, thank you. I think the first point is for employers to look at what they've got in place already um, and then obviously to think whether they need to make any adaptations And, and there will be some workplaces where Uh, They have a a bring your own device um, sort of policy and people are working on their own devices anyway, but perhaps more commonly people have been working on 
company systems, but they, they will need to address their mind along with all the other issues to do with health and safety and protective equipment and all the rest of it to how people bring back data as, as you've said Chris you know maybe hopefully not so much hard copy data which hopefully protocols are already in place for, sh for shredding that and or not creating it in the first place but if there is information on personal devices then obviously they do need to put in place some protocols about how that gets uh, given back to the company system and deleted off any personal devices or any personal cloud storage. And then I think one, one would look also at what you've got in place already in terms of, of monitoring to, to check what's going on once people are back. And, um, and there, there's a number of considerations in the UK that you have to take into account. So uh, you have to consider someone's qualified right to privacy under Article 8, which has come into force in in the UK through the Human Rights Act. And then you have to look at data protection issues because if you're monitoring, you may, you may then access personal data. And in particular in the UK, you need to look at the Employment Practices Code, which gives guidance about, about monitoring and has certain requirements such as impact assessments, informing employees, only monitoring in a way that's proportionate and making sure effectively it's a last resort. And if you can do something less intrusive, then you should do so. Do you have thoughts on this from, I mean, I don't know, I don't know that it's meaningfully different from the U.S. perspective. It seems like it's a pretty consistent issue across the board in terms of how we might take steps in bringing people back to the workplace. But what do you think about the idea of having people sign something new, certification or what have you, when they come back, that, that they brought everything back with? Yeah, I, I think it's helpful. I, I think as a, as a first comment, I view it as a time, time, of, time is of the essence issue, particularly for smaller employers who may not have the robust IT security and procedural safeguards in place that will help claw back information and make sure you can keep track of what was printed or whatnot. I tend to think that as the employees are coming back, you want to move straight away to address the issue of proprietary information left at home. Because if you let that sit, it, it'll become a stale issue. It'll be harder to chase. You may lose track of what was done or if anything, uh, if and when the employee later decides to leave. So you, you really want to deal with it while it's a fresh issue and before your company moves on to the next pressing matter. With respect to signing documents on the way back in, attestations or certifications of compliance, particularly in, in an environment where they're back in the office and you can sort of sit in front of them and, and talk to them about it or apply pressure, uh, gentle pressure, of course, is, is helpful. I do think in terms of you know having somebody come back in, you know, it may make sense to say, listen, we just need you to certify that you don't have anything else at home. I, I worry about the Kind of people have been operating under sort of these kind of quasi exigent circumstances sitting at home and in order to get work done people just do a lot of workarounds right i mean you, you sort of see it all the time where like oh you know the the remote connection to the system was a little bit funky and it was slow so i printed this or well i i forwarded it over to my gmail because my gmail connects better with my printer at home and i really wanted to highlight it like there, i just think there's all kinds of things that people will have done in a non-malicious fashion really just trying to get stuff done and in the moment doing whatever is necessary in order to answer the client's question and get the darn document in your hand or his or her hand. And so I do think having something where you say to people, 
listen, you're not in trouble. There's no trouble, but just like, think about like, did you have, is there anything funky you had to do? Did you push anything to your Gmail or, you know, stick it in your Dropbox because your Dropbox, you knew you could get it over to your printer as a PDF and then print it from there. Like, are there weird things you did that we need to go back now and clean up? And a lot of people may not even think about that, right? They're kind of psyched to get back to work and it doesn't occur to them that they have company documents sitting in their Dropbox were in these sent items of their personal Gmail. And uh, so to me, it might be a worthwhile thing to do, even though it'll be a bit of a hassle and it's not a fun conversation to have. I think we can treat it as, hey, we just need to tidy up, right? We all kind of scrambled now. We need to tidy up and get everything back where it belongs and out of anybody's personal possession. There's a, there's a secondary too, Chris, which is, as you mentioned earlier, in order to classify your information as a trade secret under most of the laws in the U.S., you have to show that you take measures that are reasonable under the circumstances to protect the information. And certifications and, and process policies like that make for great exhibits in the event you have to apply for an injunction for a document return or something of the sort. Yeah. And uh, Jonathan, I think, I mean, there's a similar, I mean, showing that has to be made uh, under the law of England and Wales as well to, to prove that that which you say is a trade secret is in fact, you know, you've taken, you've treated it as such. Is, uh, is that right? I mean, just on the point that we were talking about, I'd be pretty nervous about asking employees who'd returned from furlough to sign undertakings or, or that sort of thing, because as I say, um, people who want to move and who've got a new employer standing behind them are looking very hard for grounds to claim constructive dismissal. And to, to ask an employee to sign undertakings or something like that with no grounds for suspicion might be said to show a lack of trust. And as the English lawyers on this call will know, the implied term of trust and confidence is the critical one which guides the employment relationship. So that's a, a difficult area, I think, in England, and I'd be nervous about it, save in cases where there is some ground for suspicion. Well, that, that's interesting. So programmatically, it sounds like even though it might be something you could point to to show that, look, we take it really seriously in protecting our trade secret, it, it may have more downside than the upside could be worth. Yeah, you may have employees who walk away and say, I'm now out of my restrictive covenants because of the horrible way that you treated me. And we are in this jurisdiction quite, if I can put it this way, touchy-feely about the nature of the duty of trust and confidence. It can be, although it's a serious breach, a sort of conduct which may lead to that breach can sometimes be perhaps less potent than you would think. That's very interesting. So that, so that's, I mean, it's a great example of a, of a key difference where you can see a U.S. General Counsel's office thinking just like Mike and I were thinking that this seems like an obvious, you know, probably no downside to asking people to certify that they, there's nothing left in the, in the drawer under their kitchen table um, from, from having worked there for four months, but perhaps uh, you might actually create a new problem for yourself. Exactly why it makes sense to look at it and, and, and realize that these ripple differently across different jurisdictions for how things play out. Yeah, particularly somebody who's been on furlough as opposed to work from home, right? So, so really, he's focusing primarily really on that scenario where somebody is not just working from their kitchen table, they're not working, they're out, uh, they're, they're disconnected from the company's systems and are truly on furlough while technically still employed, of course, they're not doing anything. Now, I guess let's recognize for one thing that 
that actually means something very different for that employee today uh, in the typical U.S. furlough versus the typical England and Wales furlough. Because I think a lot of folks furloughed in the U.S. are furloughed on often something close to zero pay and only employee benefits as opposed to you know, an 80 percent regime that, that has prevailed in, in England. Although for the moment, I mean, that, that may factor into it. But the furlough concept of somebody who is still employed but not working, let's talk about whether it's a good idea on, upon recall from furlough and, and recommencement of, of active work to consider having that person sign a new restrictive covenant upon return. Uh, Jonathan and Merrill, maybe you guys go first. I mean, we, we in this jurisdiction would find it very difficult to impose new restrictive covenants on a returning employee. Their contract has continued throughout the period of furlough and save in very unusual circumstances, the employer has no ability to impose new contractual terms. Even if they did try and do that, there would be a problem which is that a variation needs to be supported by consideration. And absent there being some additional offer by the employer, some benefit, higher pay, more holidays, something of that kind, that the variation wouldn't bind in any event. You know, simply saying to the employee, here's a piece of paper with some new covenants on it, you're now bound by these. And then five years later saying to a court, oh, but Mr. X carried on working for a five-year period knowing about these, so must therefore have agreed to them, is an argument that simply doesn't work. It just won't fly. So, save in unusual circumstances, we in this jurisdiction would not be able to impose new covenants. Even if the employee was prepared to agree, and generally employees are not terribly enthusiastic about increasing the post-termination burden that they would face, there would still have to be that consideration to support the variation. So there would have to be an offer of greater pay or more holiday or something of that kind. And in this economy, one would have thought employers might not be terribly enthusiastic about that. Merrill, let me throw it over to you, but also sort of add this question to it, because I think it's a question that is meaningful from the U.S. perspective, is could it not be argued that the actual opportunity to be recalled from furlough as opposed to made redundant is in fact that new benefit that's given to the person to support the covenant. But Meryl, your, your sort of thoughts generally, but also you know, could, could that get you there? Specifically on that, I, I don't think it would get you there. I think, I think you would need to add pay rise or some additional consideration. I 100% agree with what Jonathan said. I think the only situation where an employer might be thinking about it is where Perhaps some people were made redundant or are now being made redundant and others that were furloughed are being asked to come back. So their job is changing there. You would very much want to find something in your budget to support a renegotiation with the employee because covenants are judged at the date that they're entered into. So if you've got some old covenants that don't really cut it in relation to an increased role, you would then want to put new covenants in place, but you would need consideration over and above just bringing people back and not making them redundant. That's interesting. Mike, uh, maybe chime in from the U.S. perspective and in general, but also one of the things that 
struck me as we began to think about this is is the material change doctrine in Massachusetts, which is a little bit of a curveball, at least if you're there. And I'm wondering how that may or may not play in. So perhaps your thoughts generally, but but maybe include that. Yeah, so I, I think generally, at, at a bare minimum in the U.S., it, the return from furlough gives employers an opportunity to examine their covenant regime. I think what they ultimately decide to do with it is going to depend on a, a number of facts. In the U.S., the threshold of consideration for a restrictive covenant is far lower uh, because our system is, is not one of, primarily not one of contract. Employees are employed on, a, on what we call an at-will basis and can be terminated at any time for no reason, without notice, without further compensation. So the notion that stems from that is that, in fact, in many states, in most states, continued employment is itself a sufficient nugget of consideration for the execution of a restrictive covenant agreement. Uh, So I do think the opportunity to look at your covenant regime and perhaps assess whether you were doing it right before furlough um, and then deciding whether you want to try to fix the covenants after is a worthwhile exercise. Now, what I would say is that in many states, one of the things we want to look at is whether your existing covenants fall under or grandfathered into the legal regime that has otherwise changed. Chris raised the issue of Massachusetts, and this is sort of a tangential issue there, but we're seeing it in Massachusetts as well as in Virginia most recently, where states enact fairly serious uh, limitations on employers' abilities to use non-competes and uh, and the terms and conditions that have to be included in such an agreement. But in most instances, what we're seeing is that agreements that predate those statutes are grandfathered in. So an employer, for example, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts would have to say, well, I have an existing non-compete that doesn't, isn't going to cost me a lot in terms of enforcement. If I decide I want to update that non-compete, I suspect it's going to bring me under the new statute. And then I may need to offer a coextensive garden leave provision under, under the new law. And, and that's an issue for consideration. And you have to balance that against how enforceable you think your covenant may be. But I think, Chris, that raises to your point, the issue of material change and other doctrines that could arguably uh, invalidate the restriction. Because if the employee signs covenant under the terms and conditions of job A, and then is furloughed for an extended period of time, has there been a material change that should invalidate the covenant? Or is bringing them back from furlough that change? And those are issues we're going to see certainly argued, I think, in the coming months. Yeah, that, that's what I worry about in Massachusetts is, I mean, uh, sort of almost the polar opposite of what uh, Jonathan was talking about initially uh, on this topic is you might see an employee argue that you were obligated to give me a new contract because there was material change in my employment. And we do see that chain of cases in Massachusetts that suggest really, I mean, more than suggest, it really says you should give somebody a new covenant every time they get a new job within your organization. Now, the reality is, and that might lead to a new employment contract, you know, for somebody in London with a new position, whereas in the U.S. it typically doesn't. It's just, you know, on Monday you're doing that. But Massachusetts is essentially saying, well, you ought to have a new covenant because your covenant should relate to the actual job, which, of course, then in turn relates to the actual threat you pose. But it does seem quite arguable that the recall from furlough could be seen as a job change event that requires a new covenant, and I'm sure it will be argued to be such. 
Yeah, I think that's one we don't have. There's no answer for. But I, I think, you know, and 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 almost the employer may be kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. And that's it, it, upon recalling people from Provo and how they handle covenants. I just think it's going to be you guaranteed to be second guessed either way. Unfortunately, at least in the U.S. side. What do people think about sort of splitting the difference here and the idea of, of asking your employees or requiring them to reaffirm their existing covenant when they, when they come back from furlough? It's almost like saying, well, you know, if you've been out, we want to remind you of what your obligations are under your pre-existing contract. And please sign here to reaffirm, to confirm that you remember that and you are still agreeing to be bound by it. Essentially, a, a reaffirmation of your existing covenant upon the recall. What do people think about that? Pros, cons? Meryl, you want to go first? I mean, I think for the reason Jonathan mentioned earlier, that would be quite a risk, risky move. And if you're not prepared, you know, if you're not changing the covenant and, and you're not prepared to offer it, what do you do then? So I think it, it puts the employer in a bit of a weak position and also it could give rise to breach of trust and confidence arguments. Also, Meryl, I wonder what the benefit would be. I mean, at the end of the day, the covenants that are in the existing contracts are either enforceable or they're not. And yeah. I, I think the fact that the employees asked to sign a one-page document that says, I hereby affirm my covenants, really isn't going to matter one bit at the end of the day. So why, why take the risk of agitating the employee or giving rise to a constructive dismissal argument, even if it's not, not a very good one, for almost no material advantage? Yeah, I agree. I don't think no, that, that's interesting. Mike, what do you, what, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think the, the result is much different in the U.S. I think there's a, there's a lot lower risk of downside from the U.S. perspective. But at the same time, the covenant is, as Jonathan says, either enforceable or it's not under the law. And the reaffirmation by a non-lawyer a non employee being pulled back from furlough, likely uh, having getting back on payroll, and, and so therefore apt to sign anything put in front of them, isn't going to necessarily carry a ton of weight uh, in court on an application for injunction to enforce the, con the, the contract. And in, in fact, I could see an argument being made that uh, the employer recognized that the covenant was lacking and uh, caught the employee in a moment of desperate willingness and had them reaffirm something that had they had normal clarity of thought uh, being fully employed wouldn't, wouldn't have agreed to. I don't know that it gets you that far. I think if you're going to if you're going to do something, you might as well overhaul your covenants. That that would be my perspective. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. It, it strikes me as it probably has more downside than upside. But but it was a you know, it's an idea that was floated out to me recently, and I kind of wondered about it. But I, I do tend to think it's you're more likely to lose at that game than win at that game, and, and, and including the long run value of it. One other item in re, recalling people from for or have the folks that are on furlough and I, there certainly will be, I mean, I, I, certainly news reports have suggested that a good percentage of people who are presently on furlough will be uh, made redundant or, or otherwise let go, you know, in, both in England and Wales and the U.S. And, and elsewhere, unfortunately. One issue that has come up in some conversation recently, and I think this plays out differently in, under the different jurisdictions, is if somebody's been on furlough, disconnected from the workplace, although paid or otherwise getting compensated through benefits in some way, but disconnected from active work for a period of four or five, maybe six months. What impact, if, and then that person is either terminated or leaves, just says, I'm done, I've got another job. What impact does that period of furlough have on 
the duration of their covenant? Is there an argument to be made that they get sort of credit for time served and the covenant ultimately should be shorter from the point that they leave? Let me throw that out what people think. Uh, Jonathan, do you want to go first on that? But how, how do you see that? Is there any argument to be made for on the employee's side that like, well, gosh, I've been disconnected for four months. So I got a 12-month covenant. Uh, it should really only be eight months at this point. What it doesn't do is um, have any impact on the enforceability of the covenant because that's judged on the date that the parties entered into their contract. But what it might do is affect the judge's discretion on the duration of injunctive relief that he or she may be prepared to order. You know, we do have some authority in England for the notion that if there's been a long period of garden leave, the court might be prepared not to grant an injunction that enforces the totality of the post-termination covenant period. It doesn't mean the covenant's not enforceable. And in theory, the employer would be left with a claim for damages for the balance that isn't enforced for whatever that might be worth. But there is some hope that a judge might not grant an injunction for the whole period. So, so what, what is your sense of the sort of level of willingness of uh, high court judges to do that, to sort of essentially intercede on some with some sense of bareness as to the duration of a, of a, of an injunction like that like you know essentially modifying the period at least for injunctive purposes from 12 months to eight months or six months or, or whatever seems fair so far so far as i am aware in the last 15 years there has only been one example of that happening in a case called bgc and tullet prebodden i see that Mike Lampert is is one is in the audience here. who he was one of my instructing lawyers in that action. Um, that was a very unusual case. Uh, but then COVID is a very unusual situation. So it seems to me that there is some prospect that in injunction applications that follow from the end of of lockdown and people resuming work, there is some chance a judge might take that into account but there's not much authority in England for it. The principle is sound, the practice is unclear. And I think I'm right in saying, you know, our focus today is on confidential information and and the comments made by the judge in that case didn't relate to confidential information. But I suppose the argument is that you would go back to basics and say, perhaps, you know, is there any confidential information still in the possession of the employee if they haven't been doing any work? Jonathan, any closing comments from you? And then Meryl and Mike, I'll I'll turn to you. Well, they're interesting times, aren't they? And in circumstances where there will be a very fluid job market, it seems to me you can expect plenty of senior executives to be taking what used to be called the Rolodex with them. So I would expect that this will be a busy area of litigation for the next year or so. Uh, Agreed. Meryl? I think we haven't had time to touch on the difficulties perhaps of uh, in enforcing covenants in a COVID uh, situation. But I think what that brings home is the need for preventative measures, some of which we've talked about and others of which are in our slides. And, and the risk for an, a new employer um, that they can also be on the hook for if they don't take sensible steps to ensure that they're not allowing incoming employees to either misuse confidential information or approach clients in a way that they're prohibited from doing. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Mike, quick final thoughts? 
Sure, I, I would echo uh, Marilyn Jonathan's points, and I would add that uh, I, I agree with Jonathan that we're going to see a potential deluge of these cases, and a combination of high volume and new issues to consider means that it's going to be important for practitioners to stay diligent and completely up to speed because this is going to be a changing landscape and, and I, I suspect a rapidly changing landscape. I think that's right. I do think we're going to have an interesting couple of years coming and some, some real litigation challenges and, and maybe some, some new case law coming out of this. Thank you everybody for joining.